The views and opinions of the EDGE podcast do not necessarily represent those of Education USA, U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. Welcome to The Edge, the Education USA Global Exchange Podcast, broadcasting from the central nervous system of our global network, Washington, D.C. and welcome to The Edge, the Education USA Global Exchange. I'm Adina Archer, and this is your official channel for all things U.S. higher ed and international student recruitment and retention. The real, the raw of a growing international network circling the globe and often on the road. Before we dive in, remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite provider. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to The Edge, the Education USA Global Exchange. This is Adina Archer from Education USA here in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by our colleagues today, Lisa Maroney and George Kasanga. Thank you so much for hosting us, Adina. We're so excited to have this conversation in a space where we haven't gotten to talk to a lot of our friends and colleagues in a long time. I'm so excited to have this dialogue with you all. Like you said, my name is Lisa Maroney. I work at Shoreline Community College in the greater Seattle area. We are one of the top colleges for international enrollment, number 16, according to IIE this year. I've worked here for five years as the Senior Associate Director of International Outreach. And before that, I was at a private university, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Prescott, Arizona. Well, fantastic. It's it's great to be here with both of you. Again, my name is George Kasenga. And most recently, I'm, I'm, I just completed my term as the president of the board for the American International Recruitment Council, or ARC. I'm fortunate to be serving currently as the assistant vice president for university partnerships with M-Square Media. But fortunately, I can say my career has now at least touched four different decades in terms of what I've been doing for international enrollment management and recruitment. I most recently was with Purdue University Northwest as their senior international officer, but I was with the University of Colorado in Denver and the Anschutz Medical Campus as a director of international enrollment management and the University of Pittsburgh before that. And of course, my career goes on a little bit more than that, but a lot of experience in this space and, and really excited to talk about this with everybody. Excellent. Well, thank you both for joining us. We're very excited to have you. Today, we wanted to talk a little bit about what we're sort of calling International Recruiting 2.0 or recruiting after the pandemic. I think we all can agree that the world has changed. Uh, and we really won't go back exactly to the way things were before. And as difficult as this time has been, we've tried and tested a lot of new ways of reaching international students from afar. But we all know the undeniable value of recruiting in person. So I'm curious to hear from both of you, what were some successful approaches or strategies that you found during the pandemic that you think that you actually want to carry over into this brave new world post-pandemic if we ever get there? Well, sure. I know I've been asked by a number of people if I think active recruitment or, you know, crossing borders for recruitment purposes only is, is a thing of the past. And I don't think that is the case by any stretch. But there is a conversation about staff and institution risk tolerance as we mitigate these new variants and all this stuff that is going on. But the pandemic really did expedite innovation in a lot of areas within university or college life in the U.S., we had online or virtual information sessions. People could Zoom with us, but we really stepped up. Our on-campus events always centered around this idea of memorable moments, but we knew that those memorable moments were lost in some of our online programs that we were doing. So we really had to innovate and find ways to have 
the demonstrations and the, the sample classes and all the elements of a campus visit that are really amazing to translate into that virtual experience. So now, whether we're attending fairs to recruit with our, with our partners or institutional partners overseas, we now have virtual tours and chatbots and sample classes, all of these new things that maybe were important in the past but hadn't been prioritized. The, the full deck is now available to our teams to, to really innovate and reach out to students. Those of us who weren't able to travel but really invested in maintaining those relationships with overseas partners, whether they were our high school counselors in another country, a marketing or some third-party vendor or recruitment agency, those with whom we maintained those relationships through this experience are seeing a stronger relationship as it starts to trail off, which is helping with our, our recruitment efforts. We have also benefited from an increased amount of digital marketing collateral that was created. Maybe you didn't have the virtual view books and all of these things to the extent that we produced during the pandemic. But I, for one, really appreciated the institutional commitments I saw to web accessibility because that's not always expected in our, in our international markets. The last two things I would mention in this area are that in this period of time, really paid attention to the expansion of STEM designated programs to figure out how can I really emphasize those. If folks aren't sure how to track that stuff down, you can find it through the Department of Homeland Security. You can easily find that STEM designated list but also engagement with the state consortia. I was part of and supportive of the creation of Study Colorado while I was there, and we are just on the cusp of creating Study Indiana. I don't want to be too premature in sharing that, but we did file all the paperwork just before the end of last year, and so we'll be hopefully rolling that out here soon. But that professional engagement with colleagues and creating the, the real momentum around a state being an education destination is important and also played a role in advocacy. This was so well said, George. Lisa, what do you think? I've seen a lot more happening with Study Washington and a lot more obviously going on online. I have been um, among a few schools who started traveling uh, as soon as humanly possible. But of course, um, our team did almost 300 virtual events during this time. And I think we really learned a lot about opportunities that we didn't really think about or have time for before COVID that helped us reconnect with partners more frequently than we were able to when we were on the road, uh, helped us connect with students outside of some of the cities that we target when we travel and partner even more closely with Education USA and other partners um, who really featured us in ways that we had never considered asking to be featured before. I was so grateful. I mean, this is an Education USA podcast, but truly, I got so much support from some of the advisors that I met at forums and I talked to briefly and said, oh, I hope I go to your country someday. And they reached out to me and said, hey, community college is where it's at right now. Can you come and talk to our students about the value of that? And it kind of opened our eyes and our minds to new ways that we can outreach. Of course, in-person outreach is still super important and always will be. We also went to fairs that weren't so good, right? <laughs> and didn't work for our institutional profile or our strategy. And recognizing what still holds value ongoing versus what um, will be difficult to continue or just not valuable to continue was a really good use of this time during COVID as we think about what we're carrying forward. And Lisa, can I ask a follow-up question? Sure. I think it, it, it's, you know, that number of 300 virtual events, whether that was in a year or about 18 months, I really think helps folks understand kind of that bar, that expectation of, you know, really aggressive, successful recruitment and enrollment management. 
I'm curious to know roughly how many staff would be involved in an office that could host 300 virtual events in a, in a set amount of time. We have about three and a quarter staff on our team. So we have three full-time outreach staff and then a wonderful academic advisor who has extensive experience overseas who pitch hit for us and helped us because we did lose one position on our outreach team. And so she's been incredible to support. There's been a few other events for the first time ever where I'm asking other staff across the campus, hey, I am quadruple booked literally a few weeks ago, quadruple booked. Our director of orientation ended up doing a presentation for me. Our China specialist did a presentation in the Middle East for me. I was doing a presentation for Taiwan at the same time. And so we certainly had more hands on deck, which is another interesting benefit of COVID, right? That folks who might need to be in the office could also help invest in some of those programs. So that was really important to us. But some of it too was, frankly, at the beginning of the pandemic, we did everything. I think everyone in the field can identify with that, that you're up till 3 a.m. and you're back in the office at 8 a.m. and you're doing presentations left, right, and center in any time zone, anyone was willing to speak to you. And then we had to take a pause and say, what's valuable, what's working, what's not working? And I think we kind of reduced the quantity of what we were doing in favor of quality. And that was also super important for our staff, right? Because you can't be awake 24-7 and give as engaging of a presentation as you'd like and uh, making sure that we have the bandwidth to properly serve the students who are really interested in coming. I, I appreciate that because you know, I, I write and present a lot of times in our professional groups about return on investment. And I was wondering if you'd go in that direction, because as we look forward, how we set up this strategy between active recruitment travel and virtual events and, I don't know, digital buys online, all that stuff it does come down eventually to how are we assessing our, our return on investment and, you know, our data management strategies. Absolutely. And, you know, uncommonly, I also came to think about staff energy and bandwidth as part of that ROI. Mm. Is my staff going to be up till 5 a.m. and exhausted the next day? Where, how can we make it sustainable to be doing these impactful activities and also continue on and be able to run the office in a way that's professional and supportive of staff as well. So I want to go off script a little bit here. I want to go back to the virtual piece, but let's talk a little bit about staffing. Lisa, you mentioned losing some staff along the way. We know that there's been lots of information in the news about sort of this great resignation. And we know that that higher ed in particular has been hit very hard. Can you both talk a little bit about that, what you're seeing in the field, what you're seeing at your own institutions? Sure. So, you know, just coming out of the, the ARC conference in late December, that was a theme that many institutions were talking about. I've even experienced it firsthand where there's just a, an enrollment shift or there is a, a prioritization of strategic plan. Um, that's one thing I wanted to make sure to touch on today. Whatever approach people are taking in terms of their recruitment strategy, many of the written strategic plans may not align with what the realities are right now. And people should stop and check with their leadership because what was written and made sense to do in late 2019, there probably hasn't been time or people to update those written documents, but the, the tasks and actions that should be taken now are probably different. I had one person say they weren't told that they were trying to do more with less, that they were prioritizing, maintaining academic integrity, but actually trying to do less with less. 
that they wanted to make sure that their, their staff were focused on high quality activities. And I really valued that that academic integrity piece wasn't being threatened or touched, uh, but it was about how do we do really well those essential aspects of a, of a higher education in a, you know, a liberal arts type setting in the United States. In our office, in conjunction with my AVP, who is a visionary and phenomenal administrator, we have a roadmap, right, an enrollment roadmap that we follow, and we drafted a new document called the Enrollment Detour, the Pandemic Enrollment Detour. (laughs) (laughs) I've been updating it at least quarterly, sometimes more, so that way when upper administration says, hey, what are you doing and why? We have documentation of all of the innovative things we've had with updates. Sometimes I'll say, we tried this thing and we were excited and it wasn't so great. And here's this next thing that we're trying and we're continuing to do that. So some of that is making sure you're telling your story and advocating for the resources you need with the new reality has been a really kind of defining moment in our institution and making sure that we still have what we need to serve students well. And with staffing, you know, an an interesting thing I'm seeing with colleagues and friends is is talking about the shift from being fully online in some places to being back on campus and the implications that has for staff as well. I've heard from a lot of folks, there's some pain points in what happens if your staff has been virtual for a year and a half? What happens, you know, in some states they've been back on campus and some they're just coming back or haven't come back yet. And I think some of that is that great resignation conversation. You're you're bringing up Adina about what does the new reality look like for staff? And I know there's some colleges now that are saying hybrid's here to stay. We expect to see you a couple days a week and not the other couple days. And of course, as international recruiters, we've spent, at least at Shoreline, I travel six months a year. And so being remote wasn't new for me, but I know for some folks, it's a different experience if they're newly questioning whether they want to be on campus or in a hybrid or remote position. It may have also been the case that prior to this kind of forced experience of remote and hybrid work, I don't know if it was a trust issue, but there wasn't an incentive to to try this. But I think a lot of folks in higher education recognize or experience A lot of us really love what we do, and we certainly are putting in more than 40 hours a week. And having this opportunity with hybrid, I think it's being recognized that more of that passion and joy that comes with working with the students and making the most of our time on campus while maybe we're doing the the data management and processing and just task things from home are creating a work-life balance that people really appreciate and enjoy. Melissa Emanuel, and I am the Education USA advisor in the majestic, picturesque Helen of the West Indies, St. Lucia. Hi, my name is Renita Charles, and I am the Education USA advisor in captivatingly refreshing and beautiful Dominica. Hi there, my name is Anastasia Paris. And I am the Education USA advisor in the birthplace of Alexander Hamilton, Uali, Nevis, lovely Nevis. And my name is Sabrina Foster, coordinator of the Eastern Caribbean Education USA Advising Centers at the U.S. Embassy in the island with endless possibilities, Idele Barbados. The students in the Eastern Caribbean are some of the brightest minds in the world and over 2,000 students pursue higher education in the U.S. annually. 
The Embassy in Barbados will be thrilled to support your engagement with the gifted students of Antigua and Barbuda, Barbados, Dominica, Grenada, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines. So pack your bags and visit us. For more information, connect with the Embassy via email at bridgetownirc at state.gov. See you soon. So going back to the conversation about virtual events, Lisa, you said that your office did about 300 virtual events that first year, and some of them were great, and some of them didn't really work well. Um, and we've talked a little bit about what, what's gone really well and what we want to bring into the future. But how are we going to balance in-person recruiting with all of these virtual events? It's, it's like a brave new world of hybrid, but how do we do this realistically within our offices? Well, frankly, Adina, it's hard. I just came off of a seven country trip in November. And while I was on the road, I was still doing virtual events in other countries with partners that I value and thought were really important. But I think it's going to really force our institutions to think about quality, right? If I could do a hundred events at once, which ones are the most worth my time will connect me with the right students will best support my partners. What does that look like? And also, I think it comes back to a little bit, if your institution has the resources, if I'm in Dubai and able to do an in-person event, is there someone else in my team that can backfill me, even if it's my assigned territory? It's forcing innovation because we can't be everywhere at once, but we also don't want to give up on some of those events that have been really meaningful during COVID either. And I, I think it's also important to have systems in place where there's just data management and tracking. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about, you know, what CRM are you using? Hopefully you have something. But when you're doing all these virtual events, you're going to have students who maybe attend two or three and then meet you in person or even more than that. In the end, when I'm doing my analytics, trying to figure out last season, last recruitment cycle, we did 300 of these events. How many do I need? I want to know what is the propensity of enrollment for a student who attended one versus three versus five of these types of events. Those analytics are going to be an important part of, you know, not just understanding what you did and why what happened happened, but then also making the strategy for what to do next. Okay. And so once we figure that out, how do we balance in-person and virtual? The virtual can be appealing to a campus that has some budget restrictions and maybe the staffing has declined and enrollment is down because active in recruitment does have often a larger price tag than just a, a virtual event. The analytics I've done at multiple institutions have shown that the yield of applications admitted and enrolled students from in-person relationship management, uh, which is active travel, has always been higher than a lot of my other strategies. Having multiple modalities for recruitment is absolutely necessary. You can't put everything into just one of those strategies. But as, as I'm looking at how to balance this moving forward, if I can only do a little bit of active travel or that budget is smaller, I'm going to be looking at maybe what high schools or partners have traditionally been feeders that I haven't visited in the past year or two. I'm going to be looking for just any of those overseas partners, whether it is maybe I have a recruitment partner of some type, maybe I have a sponsor that I work with. That agent or sponsor relationship management is very important. And that might be a trip just to DC or a local consular office, but often that would be some, uh, something that needs to go overseas. And I would prioritize that until budgets get closer to their previous levels. I've been out on the road again, and I kid you not, a high school counselor hugged me and said, 
We're so sick of virtual. <laughs> We're so sick of virtual. Thank you for coming. We're so excited you're here. It's not just the students, it's us too. Zoom fatigue is real. And of course it's filling a very necessary gap, but there's also a point where it's, you know, diminishing returns on whether or not you can get those same students to come to a hundred different events to sit up at whatever time it is and talk to you on a computer. And I think all of us have had the experience of those darkened screens. They don't turn their camera on. You're talking to a wall or might as well be. And the students, every single student I met on the road said the same thing. We're so glad to see you in person. Thank you for coming. And so as campus leaders are thinking about this, Virtual has a place and it's important, but the amount of even just pure enthusiasm before we get to the ROI is so high that I think institutions who might be considering cutting in person altogether really aren't being responsive to what people are asking for, both high school counselors and students, and probably some staff as well who would love to talk to a living, breathing human being and not just a computer screen. All these things we learned through the innovation of virtual are going to persist as new or additional touch points with our prospective students. So I want to echo what Lisa said about the high school seniors. I have a high school senior at home right now. And at some point he just said, I'm not not doing any more virtual. <laughs> I'm just not doing it. I, I refuse to do it. Um, and to go back to what George said, you know, I think any strategy should include layering in a market, right? And so that some virtual touch points, hopefully some in-person, even if it's not you, maybe it's uh, maybe it's an Education USA center, maybe it's alumni, right? How, how are you using your alumni overseas? But you've got to have these layered touch points. Over the past decade, the number of Bangladeshi students studying in America has increased significantly due to the growing college-age population and increased demand for quality higher education. America remains as the top destination for study abroad opportunities among Bangladeshi students, so the possibilities are endless. Bangladeshi students shine on American college campuses. They appreciate the opportunity to study there approach their studies with a sense of self-discipline and a sense of purpose. More than 75% of Bangladeshi students currently on U.S. college campuses are studying STEM. Education USA Bangladesh aims to help many more qualified Bangladeshi students to pursue various other academic disciplines and attend different types of institutions such as liberal arts colleges, HBCUs, women's-only colleges, or pursue the community college route. We have four advising centers in Bangladesh engaging with students, their parents, high school teachers, school counselors, and university professors. We're interested in working with U.S. colleges and universities to amplify opportunities, providing high-performing Bangladeshi students from socio-economically disadvantaged background with a chance to study in America. So we've talked a little bit about setting expectations with leadership, but then we've got folks listening. Some of them are in a one-person office. You know, the institution that I came from, we had like 50-something recruiters available. There's got to be something in between as well. So what does that look like for you all? Well, if, if I could jump in initially, I will comment that in my career, I have had leaders who have inspired me and leaders who have challenged me. And there's, there's always, maybe not the kind of challenge we like that is inspirational, but 
you know, there's always a lesson to learn there. And it's been my experience, and I've seen my colleagues be in offices that don't have a beautiful enrollment plan that outlines what our, our application targets are and our headcount objectives are. Sometimes people are just told, get last year's number plus one, or get as many as possible. And I know that is said a lot, and I understand where that's coming from, but it isn't particularly helpful when you are trying to look at your limited resources and come up with a strategy that people are going to look to you and say, you, you succeeded this year against all this different adversity. I think many of the forecasting models that we have come to rely on have been confounded by the irregular data of the past two years. So that also makes things complicated. I think people are getting higher targets or objectives than might really be feasible for them. I think a, a, an individual in one of our recruitment offices needs to have a sensitivity to the institutional context that they are in. There are a lot of different budget models. You might have incremental budgeting. It could be zero-based budgeting, responsibility center. There are just all these different types. The way that you advocate for having clearly set goals or even asking for resources changes based upon the different type of setting that you're in. And I think it is completely appropriate to check with your leadership or maybe a business analyst on campus and ask them just to explain what is that budget process like at your institution so that you aren't the person who just goes around saying, we can't meet a goal or we need more resources, but you can actually switch your narrative to one of, um, you know, I had a boss who said it's an ask versus a tell. An ask is when you go to your boss and say, I need, you know, 20,000 more dollars to do all these different things to reach my goal versus a tell is when you can say, here are the resources I have, and here are the objectives we're going to be able to meet. If I'm resourced at this level, I can do X, Y, Z. And if I'm resourced at a third level, you know, we will be able to achieve these different goals. Then you're putting it back into your leadership to have a discussion with you. And there's consensus around what resources you have and what objectives you're going to achieve with those goals. And maybe that sounds nice to say on a podcast and it's hard to do in reality, but I really have found just that kind of semantics game of an ask versus a tell has made a world of a difference in talking with leadership about these types of goals. So you encapsulated that really well. And I think that reflects a lot of the process that we have at my institution. Um, at being at a community college, we're so lucky that we're quite close to upper administration. And in fact, our executive director of international was promoted to AVP over all of international and student services, which makes those two-way conversations instead of directives happen a lot more readily. But part of the conversation we've had a lot lately is these, you know, geopolitical realities plus COVID. What does this look like now that relationships are changing with some of our major markets, um, really engaging with goals and saying, if this, then that. We have our rosiest possible picture, our reality picture, and our what if X scenario plays out in factors that don't work well for us. And so I think we really benefit from having some of these conversations because it's not the same as the U.S. where we know what's happening in our neighborhood. We know what's happening in Washington state or across the country, but there really are a lot of impactful factors in each of our markets that can impact those numbers and the, the ultimate enrollment. So I was doing some consulting work recently where I was reminding the team there that it can't, doesn't always feel this way, but our leaders, whether they are our immediate supervisor or maybe it's a CFO or some distant person high up the hierarchy, they really do want us to succeed. 
And sometimes in the enrollment management space or the recruitment offices, it can feel a lot like the conversation is only about headcount or hitting these targets, and it feels distanced from the things we love about higher education. But that is part of the nature of our work. Our success is what facilitates or makes it possible for the rest of the university to really dig into all that beautiful work about global perspectives and uh, helping our students understand international dynamics. And so just reminding them that when we're giving our presentations, it's important to know the context of who we're speaking with. If I'm talking with an academic dean, I might be advocating for resources through a conversation about class profile and geographic diversity. But if I'm with a CFO, it might be all about headcount and it might be about the credit hours that these students will take. Uh, another person might be thinking about, we have decreased enrollment and there's a lot of capacity in certain programs. So just having that ability to take complex data and make it easy to understand for these different audiences, and then also have data that's related to, to the financial outcomes. What are the cost savings, the efficiencies? How's that money allocated? Talk about the revenue that is generated, the, the growth, the, the distribution, uh, just trends that may come from, well, trends up or down. It's often really important to not always have growth, although everybody likes growth, but to be able to give an, a realistic forecast of what's to come so budgets can be made around it and planning can happen because that's better to deal with than setting a false expectation and then coming in under that target. Many institutions have pulled back funding for international enrollment in favor of domestic recruiting, um, but the demographic numbers in the states don't really support this strategy. Can you guys talk to that a little bit? Well, at Shoreline, I'll say we're very fortunate that that wasn't the case. And I think it really comes down to having supportive leadership that understands the value of international, even at a time where international numbers are struggling a little bit at community colleges for a variety of reasons. So um, we're persisting and staying the course. And for my colleagues who are experiencing that, I think it's going to have to be a strategy conversation, if not now, in the near future, uh, when everything is back to normal, quote unquote normal, um, to see what's happening at that domestic level. And it might not be as rosy as they are projecting at this point. Well, I think another element of that is, you know, for the past two or three years, even before the pandemic, Many enrollment managers, um, domestic and international, were captivated by um, Nathan Graw's Demographics and the Demand for Higher Education. It was a, a book that's really insightful and gives great analytical um, ways to analyze this, this type of data. The concern for a long while here has been about these domestic demographic shifts, the, the cliff, and there are elements of this that are real, but the most recent census data indicates that it, it's not as bad as we had feared, but it's also not as rosy as we would like it to be. Um, I think international enrollment will continue to play a critical role for most universities who, again, have the capacity right now and want to fill as many of those seats as possible. It also, so it attributes to headcount, but there's also the, the diversity, the global perspectives. And, and in the IIE uh, fall 21 snapshot, one of the data points they had that was interesting to me is that there were about 40,000 students from the fall of 20 who had deferred their enrollment. And so right now, right now, I don't know if we are having a, um, you know, is this an enrollment bump? that people are seeing growth in international numbers, or is it just this enrollment delay because we have this backlog and in the next semester or two, we might see that reconcile and then have a much more clear picture of, of what we're looking at. 
And I would also say this is an opportunity to put our hats on as international educators and educate our leadership. I think there might be for some this misconception of international students aren't coming into the country or why would we even spend money on this? Why would we focus on this? So I think coming armed with some good data um, is, is gonna be helpful because they're not the experts in this in this area. We're we're the experts. So don't be afraid to to teach to teach those folks who are who are making those decisions. And when the, when the pandemic first started, you know, many schools were caught off guard with having protocol around quarantining and you know just everything that came with that. But I think now, ultimately, I think our institutions are going to come up with solutions where our international students can arrive to campus quarantine in an easy or expected way, get access to vaccines and boosters so that we are you know, still remaining an attractive education destination for international students from around the world. Um, because I do think we have a lot of wonderful aspects of our education that benefit um, the United States and our students here, but as well as these students who go back and make their countries and their cultures just a little bit better in their, their own way because of their experience here. So I don't want that to go away. But I also think there is a tremendous benefit to our own domestic policy uh, to having international students be able to come here, the tuition revenue it generates, um, and just that broader economic impact that we have benefited from uh, seeing growth year after year from the international student enrollment. So as we wrap up today, I did wanna ask you both if you have any tips for your colleagues, what markets should they be looking at and why, or what markets are worth rediscovering? Well, I have a few a few ideas for all of our colleagues out there. I mean, for many of us, this is an opportunity to begin again and really create something exciting uh, and build upon possibly what has already existed. But I think as you're looking at, you know, where do you recruit next? What do you what do you do to advance your international uh, strategic plan? It's important to understand the programs that you have and why why they are attractive in certain certain markets, especially when you're that one person or a small office. It's overwhelming to think that your job is to recruit the world while someone else just has some of the contiguous states in, in the admissions office. Looking to Education USA as a global guide is a great place to start gathering that type of market intelligence to just find where there are alignments between your institution and what's happening in the world. Um, I often look at economic indicators like a growing middle class or just different geographic locations that have um, elements about them that align with the research that faculty are doing at my institution. Um, you know, being in the Great Lakes region, I would look for institutions that did freshwater research and then try to find ways to recruit in those, those areas. Um, emerging markets can be very exciting, uh, but don't forget that we have all of our other markets that we already invested in that are growing or that we need to um, help sustain. And I think that the last piece that I would want to add is, you know, I've seen a headline a lot lately that Bill Gates says that most virtual meetings will move to the metaverse within three years and that we'll all be using virtual headsets and avatars. Personally, I'm not thrilled by that, but I can recognize the momentum that's out there. And I, in, in my research, you know, 93 million people are expected in the United States to be using virtual reality or augmented reality at least once a month in some type of recreational or business capacity. That is evidence of the direction we are heading. I saw that about 10% of the U.S. population also owns 
some type of virtual reality headset. So maybe that's still a niche market, but it's definitely a, a, an emerging market. And so setting up some type of virtual recruitment strategy uh, or having someone at the university who is thinking about the institution's virtual strategy is something that we need to be paying attention to because many of our majors, especially the STEM fields that are so attractive to our international students, will have students who are looking for that type of touch point in their recruitment strategy, because it's gonna be an indicator that this is a place that is future focused, future oriented, and a place where I wanna invest my time and resources for my academics. And to piggyback on that, I will say that many of our Education USA advising centers overseas now have VR headsets and are helping to create some of these metaverses. Is that, I don't even know if that's the right, <laughs> that's Dude, my understanding. That is it one metaverse, metaverse or? Well, the metaverse is kind of is akin to the internet or the World Wide Web. Okay, well, they're, they're, they're creating their own little advising centers on the metaverse so that students can engage in that. Part of what you said really resonated with me that there's tons of emerging markets that have potential, but then we also have this very deep responsibility to steward the markets that we're already working in. And one thing that we found at Shoreline is retention is some of the best recruitment we can do. And I was so excited, frankly, to have more touch points with student services than I have in the past because I was here, at least virtually, and had more bandwidth for it. And I found we could invite more parents to our sessions. We've always traditionally hosted uh, sessions for parents and family and friends of students who come for orientation, but usually we'd see this very small sliver of parents who could afford to come, who could get a visa, who are able to join their students. But during virtual orientation, we're seeing parents come to orientation when they weren't before, to presentations, to graduation. And now we're starting to invite parents to come and speak at some of our presentations and say, hey, this was my experience with Shoreline. And I think in some ways, deepening those connections by being able to invite folks who weren't previously at the table, they're the best recruiters I have. If there's a parent in Seoul who says Shoreline is a great place, let me tell you about it, that's more than I'll ever be able to contribute to that conversation, right? And so I think uh, re-envisioning the way that we invite people to the table and kind of leveraging virtual in a way that can expand our presence in all over the world could make a really big difference in who ends up enrolling at our institutions. And so I've been, you know, racking my brain and challenging our staff to find those new spaces where we're welcoming folks who wouldn't traditionally be there. And I think that'll have a positive outcome for enrollment in the future as well. These are all excellent points. Thank you both so very much. You know, when we think of markets in the international recruiting space, we often think of geographical places. But if the pandemic has taught us nothing, it's how to look for things from slightly different angles. Looking at the how, maybe through this new metaverse, or the who, maybe spending more time building those critical relationships with our stakeholders. These are the things that are gonna help move the needle toward more and better internationalization. Lisa and George, I wanna thank you both very much for joining me today. And to our audience, we hope that you've enjoyed these first three pilot episodes of The Edge, the Education USA Global Exchange. In addition to our wonderfully amazing programming put on by our advising colleagues at our centers around the globe, we have some great programming coming up specifically for our colleagues in the US higher ed world. Please keep a lookout for upcoming Education USA seminars. We have our DC forum in August and the reemergence of in-person regional forums in the fall. 
We'll also have several more episodes like this in the coming months, so stay tuned and don't forget to subscribe. The views and opinions of the Edge Podcast do not necessarily represent those of education in the state, U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government.